You're listening to a DM podcast. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Today on the Stick Up Podcast, we have former world champion boxer, Billy Dibb. Billy Dibb fought some tough opponents, but recently his toughest opponent was cancer. Joining us today is friend of the show, Jackson Tibbet. Billy, so glad to have you on the show today. Welcome to the Stick Up. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Man, I, I was doing some research on you this morning. There's a lot of things I didn't know about you, man. You were born a fighter. Man, I, I was I was born a fighter, definitely. You know, I was uh, born and bred a fighter. My mother's Palestinian, you know, which comes from a fighting uh, fighting country. You know what I mean? So, I think that was instilled in me from birth. You know what I mean? So I was born and um spent a little bit of time in an incubator and I was a little bit unwell, but managed to get through it and you know suffered from uh, asthma and stuff like that as a young kid, getting bullied, all that all that business, you know what I mean? We'll get into that shortly. Yeah, sure, man. Like like what was your earliest memory of the asthma itself? Because you had a chron- you had chronic asthma. Yeah. I, I man, I I had difficult mornings, difficult nights, days that I couldn't go to school because I was on the ventilator and, you know, I I would I'd get attacks just out of nowhere, you know what I mean? So obviously if you if you'd um, you know, get a little bit upset and then an attack would come on, you know what I mean? So my mum and dad had to sort of look after that when I was a young boy growing up. And then, man, thank- thankfully I, f- I found boxing and as soon as I started getting fit and I never had another episode again, ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the minute that I started to get fit and start to live well and, you know, as a, as a young fighter, you um you start to learn about the things to eat, not to eat and, you know, and dieting and running and training and the more I got fit and the more I got healthier, the better it got. Let's let's talk about your your, your upbringing. What was your family structure? Brothers, sisters? Yeah. So when I was born, um, I grew. Up, I, I was born into a family that was was four boys. So it was um, my brother Jihad, my brother Imad, Muhammad, Nasa, and then I came after them. Which is so. Um, I remember early days. We lived in Hurstville. So we lived in Hurstville. We lived in a unit in Hurstville, uh, Hillcrest Avenue. It was um, it was it was good times, you know what I mean. And then and then um, my fa- when my sister was born, three years after me, my dad bought a convenience store in a in an area called Ingadine, which is like basically predominantly white. Mm. And here we are, like a Lebanese family, brown hair, brown eyes, dark skin complexion in this Anglo area. You know, we used to get picked on on a daily basis. My dad just, he just felt like it was an opportunity to lock us into this business. And, you know, he bought it a mixed business. And me and my brothers, we uh, learned to run the store and learned customer service. That's what my dad wanted. He wanted to teach us customer service, teach us manners, how to speak to people. So he sort of moved us away from the Lebanese culture to, to Ingadine to basically start a life there. And then 
few years after that, my younger brother Yusuf was born. So, you big know, family, we, we grew mate. Up in a family of six boys and one girl. Growing up there, mate, you you, you talked about encountering bullying. Mate, tell us about like bullying and racism. What does that do to a young man's mindset? For me, as a young boy, um, you know, because I had my older brothers, but it was like it was so gapped out. So, for example, like by the time I got to, for example, you know, year one, my brothers were leaving. To you know, and then my brother, I was in year one. My brother was in year year two, but he he wasn't much of a fighter. My young, my brother Nasser wasn't much of a fighter. He was a very quiet kind of kid, you know, more about watching TV and that. So he wasn't. You is know, he the, which which is the brother that's now a politician? That's my brother Jihad. Yeah, yeah. So, but my brother Nasser, he wasn't much of a fighter. He was just you know very chilled, loved to watch movies and stuff and. And then you had me, I was super active, wanted to fight anything that moved. Yeah. You know, so at, at school, getting bullied and that, times people would spit on you, you know, throw things at you. So, I, you know, I, sometimes I didn't want to go to school. I'd, ring, I'd tell my mum, dad, mum, can I have a day off tomorrow? Like, you know, if I, it just, it was just one of those things, you know, you'd, you'd be walking to school and I remember one time walking to school and a bird pooped on my shirt, you know what I mean? Good I luck, like, I, got, I, I, I was like, I got to go home because <laughs> that's, a, that's a point where you're going to get picked on, you know, people are going to look at you, you're dirty, you're disgusting and whatever. So I was like, man, I got to get, I got to go back home. I remember that day vividly and I went home and then my dad dropped me off. Like I got changed and my dad dropped me off at school because we used to walk to school because dad had to run a convenience store while we were at school and then... He got mum to like sort of fill in for him. He dropped me off at school because I was going to be late. But um, it was tough, you know. It was tough, and uh, but I want to I want to stop you there, brother. What What do you have? Uh, first of all, thank you for coming on with me and Russ. And um, thank you know, you. I'm so glad to see you going well. And um, you know, we obviously wish you nothing but the best. I want to ask for anyone going through bullying. What's your best piece of advice? Well, my my dad's whole thing was kill him with kindness. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's so what like, we're talking about yeah, yesterday. Kill him with kindness. That was my dad's thing. Was like, listen, you're gonna win them over eventually. You know what I mean? Don't fight back. Don't say anything back. Just, 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 you know, just be kind. And you know, somebody does something to you, just kill him with kindness. That was my dad's whole thing. You know, and we, we we grew up. I'm telling you, we would wake up in the morning and would have painted on our wall, "Go home, you dirty wogs." Really? Yeah, we'd have "Go home, you dirty wogs" painted on our fence. Spray painted on our fence, and the people would do it in the middle of the night, you know. And dad was like, It's all right, it's no problem. We're not even going to look at the cameras who did it, whatever. It's we're just going to keep rolling on. Eventually, we're going to win them over. And that's exactly what happened, you know, because my father's a very wise man. He's still around now, thank God. But he's very, very wise. And his whole thing was, you know, you win them over. And and we did, Mm. you know, I mean, like through, you know, once I started boxing at the age of 12. And, you know, what I did was I asked the principal, I was like, listen, I think I could do something that would really help my, you know, help me through getting through school. And he's like, what is it? And I said, could I create a poster and just, can I plaster it all over the school, inviting everybody to come watch me fight? And he's like, absolutely. You know, if you want to do that, you can. And that's exactly what I did. I just made this poster saying that Billy Dibbs fighting at the Sutherland PCYC, come down and support and whatever. And all of these kids came from school Next day, I was like the biggest hero at school. Honestly, honestly, I was. It was like I fought on Saturday. On Monday, I went back to school. Everyone was like so happy that I won, and everyone was cheering me on. And it's like I won them over. You know, it was, it was perfect. Tell us about your first walking in to the PCYC for the first time. What was the feel? I was. It was amazing. I remember the day vividly. My my dad, um, my brother had given me 
a signature pair of gloves. You know, like you got you got gloves, and then you got signature gloves with gloves that like you sign on them, right? That's why you won. Yeah, and so he gave me these gloves, right? They were Ring Pro signature gloves. You could barely get them on. I had them on, and my dad and and to to um go to the PCYC at that time cost a dollar, a dollar a session. So it wasn't like twenty or thirty. It was a dollar a session. You just go in, put a dollar coin in the tin, and that was your session right there. So I walk up the stairs. My gloves were on, so I used my elbow to knock on the door. My dad put the dollar <laughs> coin in between the thumb of the glove, and I walked in. And the trainer was like, "Can I help you?" And I was like, "My name is Billy Dib, and I'm here to box." And he goes, "How'd you find out about?" It? I said, "Oh, um, Mr. Carpenter from Footy Training suggested that I do a bit of boxing. He thinks that I've got the talent to be something special." And he goes, oh, well, let me assess that. I said, well, this is the dollar coin. He goes, well, you don't need your gloves on. He goes, because oh. um, have you ever skipped before? And I was like, oh, I do a bit of skipping at school. He goes, good. Put your, take your gloves off, put the dollar coin in the tin, and grab a skipping rope. And that was just the beginning of it. And I just remember walking in the gym and looking around, and there was this amazing portrait on the wall. It was painted on the wall. It said, if in doubt, jab out. So, you know, if in doubt, jab out. I was like, man, that, that, that sounds really cool. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> And uh, I was just really excited. I was pumped. How, how long did you spend in front of the mirror? Because you spent the first six months of any boxing gym, you're in the, in the mirror practicing your footwork, skipping, shadow well, sparring. Well, I, I'm going to be honest with you. The minute that I walked into the gym, there was two guys in the gym sparring. One's name was Alex Booklock. I never forget him. The other kid's name was Adam. Mm. And they were sparring and going at it and bashing each other. And I was thinking, what's this? <laughs> These guys are going at it and no one's stopping the fight. <laughs> This is exactly what I want to do. Because, <laughs> you know, you're at school, you get into a fight, it gets yeah. broken up within a second, you know. All of a sudden, I'm seeing these two guys in the ring going at it. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I want to get into this. The mayhem. I, it was amazing. And so, you know what? I'm not joking when I say this. There was a show like four weeks later. They were promoting the show. So these kids were all getting ready for this fight night at the um, Sutherland PCYC, which was in four weeks' time. And I said to the coach, his name was Rusty Penton. I said, Rusty, listen. This was a few days after coming to training. And I was only training on a Tuesday and Thursday. I said, Rusty, I want you to put me on that show. And he goes, mate, you've never boxed in your life. I said, listen, I've watched plenty of Rocky movies. <laughs> and I know, I, listen, me and my brother, i got five brothers at home. We fight all the time. <laughs> all dad, my, my dad sells boxing. My dad sells these Rocky boxing gloves in, the, in our store. And we put them on and we fight. I go, believe me, I, I chased the guy down. And he's like, mate, you know, you're not ready. I said, listen, Rusty, please put me in. Just put me in, please. And he goes, all right, you're going to get me your birth certificate and all this stuff. And, and he goes, what's your full name? And I said, my, my full name is Bilal. My middle name is Muhammad Ali and my last name is Dib. And he goes, mate, don't say that. And I said, listen, <laughs> I'm not lying. My father's name is Muhammad Ali. And my dad had the name Muhammad Ali before Muhammad Ali had his name. Yeah. Like he was Cassius Clay when my dad was Muhammad yeah. Ali. And he's like, are you joking? And I said, mate. Please look at my look at my birth certificate. It says Bilal Muhammad Ali Dib. That's my name. And he goes, "All right, all right, maybe you are destined." You know. So I had my first amateur fight on that four card. Four weeks deep, yeah. Four wow. weeks. I, I just he just threw me right in the deep, and then that was the starting point. I never really, you know, you you learn your craft. I was just learning on the go. Yeah. And I and they used to call me a spoiler because when I when the bell would ring, I didn't have no style. I just used to chase the guy. <laughs> I mean, I used to change, just throw punches. <laughs> so they used to call me the spoiler. When you were entering the ring um, before each fight, what, what went through your mind? 
Uh, did you did you know you were gonna like? Did you have that Mike Tyson mentality where you knew you were gonna win the fight? Like you you always manifested or uh, earlier on? No. Okay. Earlier on, like when I first started boxing as an amateur, I was very very nervous kid. Yeah. Like as you are, but nerves make you sharp, right? But so when, when I so my first time that I boxed, I'm at the um, uh, Sutherland PCYC. I boxed a guy by the name of Tommy Brown. And Tommy went Brown out, was, went out to be a good fighter. Tommy, didn't yeah, Tommy he? was a, he was a, now at the time he had something like a hundred amateur fights, and so they put me in an, an exhibition against him. You know what I mean? And he looked after me, but it was it was like fun to get in, and so it wasn't really a, it was an exhibition bout. Then my next bout after that was actually a fight, and I fought a guy by the name of Shane Georges, and he was looked after by Billy Hussain. And another guy called Bernie, um, and um, and you later come to have a pretty good working relationship with Billy Hussain, didn't you? That's right. Yeah. So we start off as enemies. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was always fighting his kids and people from his gym and that. And I, I only ever lost to that Shane Georges. So from from Billy's crew, I only ever lost to Shane Georges. And then after that, I lost, so I lost my first amateur fight. Then I won my next three in a row. Then I won, lost another one, and then and then after that, it was like I went on a winning streak of like 20 like, didn't you go it was like 40 fights 45 straight 45 how many losses have you had in your whole career so as an amateur i had um i had uh, 113 fights yep i had 98 wins and 15 losses yeah yeah which was pretty cool and then the majority of my my losses were international international belts because you know you're up against like uzbekistan you know internationally when i was fighting internationally i lost to korea so you know like I got the great experience working under Coach Bodo, so I lived at the Australian Institute of Sport. Yeah, yeah, down in Canberra. Yeah, but the, the boxing, the amateur boxing career was was awesome. I, I like when you talk about that mindset. Yeah. When I was on that winning streak, I was like, all I got to do is turn up, and I've already won. Mm. And I had this trainer at the time. His name was Harry Hamoud. He was a mad trainer, mad, and and he would like he was all about having fun. You know what I mean? And the way like we'd go to the weigh-in, and he'd see my opponent, he'd tell my opponent, listen. You don't want this. You know what I mean? You're making a mistake. You need to go out and tell your trainer that you want to pull out. My boy's going to kill you. So he'd mentally break him at the way. You know, the young kids and that, you know, we were just having a laugh. I think that's how a champion thinks, though. Yeah. Do you agree? Like, they they already know. They, You know what I mean? If you if you don't know that you're going to win, yeah. you're probably not going to win. No, no, 100%. So. As an amateur, I used to think all i got to do is turn up. I've already won. That's just how I thought. Towards when I was going through that winning streak, especially, I was like, mate, you could put me with anybody. It's all over for them, you know? And so I, I had great experience. And then when I was 16, going on the 17, I remember winning the national titles in 2003. What was it like getting your first belt? Oh, wow. Man, like I, I remember winning my first belt as an amateur. Like an amateur, they give you like a belt. I was like, yeah. man, I was walking around like it was a world title. Yeah. <laughs> no joke. So I was posting up photos with it and, you know what I mean, like taking pictures and putting photos up in the house. And yeah. it, was, it was it was definitely like good times, you know. But um, I, I fought in this tournament where it was Australia versus Ireland and they would they gave you a belt at the end of it. So if you win this tournament, you get a belt. So I was ecstatic. I won this belt. It was like, man, I was walking around proud as punch. The motorbike accident in 2004. Yeah. You were a lay down was there. You were going to the Olympic Games to represent Australia and had a motorbike accident. What happened there? Oh, man, it was just a disaster. And it, it all started um, 
at the AIS. I, I was um I was in uh, training camp with uh, Coach Boda at the AIS, and he was pretty hard. He was a German. He was a pretty hard guy, and I sort of had enough. You know, what I mean, like just of his of his of his methods and stuff. Mm. So I remember him clearly saying to me, "Don't go home, because if you go home, it's not going to be good." Just stay in camp, stay with us here. And I was like, Coach, I'm packing up, I'm out of here, you know, man, I'm gone. And like, they can't stop you. But when I first went to the AIS, I was I was a young kid and basically I was locked into the AIS. I wasn't allowed to leave the premises. So that was part of the deal. When I wanted to go to the AIS, I begged Coach Bader, Coach, please, I won't leave their premises. I promise you I'll be a good boy, whatever. And he eventually brought me in. And he and I are very close friends today, like extremely close. Well, when I left the AIS to go home and be with my own trainer, this was in the lead up to the Olympic trials, and I was a hot favorite to represent Australia at the Olympic Games. One day I went to mom and I was at my mom and dad's place and my brother Mohammed rocked up and he had this motorbike, it was an R6, it was red, uh, red R6. Powerful bike. Powerful, man, and he goes to me, listen, I don't know why, but I had just gone and got my, my L's and I remember the instructor telling me, I said to the instructor, my, my, my brother's got a uh, R6. And he goes, well, unless you want to be sliding down the road, losing all your skin in that, I suggest you don't do that. Don't get it on an R6. It's too powerful for you. Just learn learn your craft at 250 and no more than that. It's the story of your life, mate. I was yeah. wanting to jump in the deep end. Yeah, and so then my brother, Muhammad, comes home with his R6 and he goes, listen, could you do me a favour? Could you wash this bike? clean it up he goes because i got a guy coming to check it out he wants to buy it and i was like all right no problem so i, I did that i washed it cleaned it all up frame was out the front of the house and then i was like i just got to turn it on just want to hear the engine turn it on i was like oh man okay you know what i just got to take it for a little spin around the block just a little one no big deal and as i get on the bike a few houses down from my, my, my mom and dad's place is my uncle's house i'm riding past my uncle's and i stop and my cousin goes, what are you doing? And like, I'm just going to go for a ride. He goes, why aren't you got a helmet on? And I was like, nah, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to go. And he goes, no, nah, oh, wait man. one second. He goes, I'm going to get a helmet for yourself and I'm going to get one. He goes, we'll go together. So I got him, all right, go get two helmets and come back. So he comes back with two helmets. I put a helmet on, plug it up. I go, listen, I'm going to go for one lap by myself. Then I'll come back and get you and we'll do one together. And he goes, all right. Now I turned, I went up the street, turned left. I fanged it down the street. I hit like 160 k's on this bike, powerful bike, man. Anyway, so then I get to the end of the road, and I'm thinking to myself, you're an absolute idiot. Somebody pulled out from their driveway, then you're dead, you know what I mean? So I was like, I've got to get off this bike, I'm just going to push it back home. That's it, I've had enough, you know what I mean? My heart was pounding a million miles per hour. I stopped the bike, I, I thought I kicked it in neutral, and I was still in first gear, and I, I accelerated. When I accelerated, the thing popped up. On one wheel, and, I, and, the, and the force of it pushing me like back made me accelerate even harder. Yeah. And I accelerated. And I, in the end, I was like, I gotta let go of the bike, otherwise I'm gonna die. So I just, I just, did, all I did was just, just do that, and the whole bike just went. Shoo, shoo, shoo. It landed on the grass. Nothing happened to the bike. <laughs> Nothing happened to the bike. I landed on the road. Shoo. Going down the road, I had a singlet. I had a singlet. Oh. I had shorts on, and I had a pair of Nikes on. My Nikes melted. Oh. The side of my Nikes melted. My skin was like all of this here was all ripped out. That my shoulders, everything was just tore up. And the Olympic trials was in like two weeks time. 
Man. Man, I was a, I was a complete mess. That's obviously the lowest of low. Like that's one of the, your lowest of lows in life. How do you rebound from that? The greatest thing that could happen to anybody happened to me after that. After so after missing out on the Olympic Games, I uh, I went to like a uh, an Islamic center just to like you know just to join in have a chat with some people and stuff. And there was a guy there by the name of Adam Huda. And Adam lawyer, Adam's a lawyer. Adam, 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 Chris Moore, Chris, he yeah, works for Chris Murphy. Yeah, that's great. So he so Adam says to me. What are you doing? I said, oh, man, I'm so disheartened. I missed out on the big games and stupid move. And he's like, listen, so what are you going to do? I said, oh, I'm just going to give it away. And he goes, don't you love Prince Nassim Hamed? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, what about if I could organize a, a meeting between you and me, you and Prince Nassim Hamed? And I was like, hell. And he goes, I know, I know somebody that knows him very well, you know? And I was like, fuck, man, if you could do that, that would be unbelievable, you know? And he's like, would your dad let you go to the UK? And I said, Absolutely, hundred percent. I've been all over the world already, and you know? my, dad, my dad's not going to say no if I'm going to get to meet Prince Nassim Hamed. And at the time I was seventeen, and he goes, "All right, I'll organise it for you, no problem." So, um, uh, a couple of days later, my sister comes home with a pamphlet. Adam's supposedly going to speak to this guy for me, but my sister comes home with a pamphlet that Prince Nassim Hamed is going to be a guest speaker at Lakemba Mosque. So you could imagine, I was the first person there. There was nobody in the mosque, but I was the first person there. I sat down right at the front. I waited patiently. I'm thinking, shit, Prince Nassim's got to come here. I'm gonna, I need to have a chat to him, you know? And you know, so then this, the speaker comes out. His name is Carla Diasin. And Carla's like, look, I've got a special guest today. He's going to be speaking to us via, uh, via satellite. And I'm like, oh, via satellite? What do you mean? So, and, you know, back in them stage, days, there was no... FaceTime or anything like that. So every there was a, there was a monitor up, and then every time Nas would speak, the, the um, you know the monitor would do like mm. you know the zigzag thing. And um, and you know, when he finished the talk, I stayed right to the end. Everyone left, and then I said to him, I said, Carl, I said, look, oh, Princess Hamed is my childhood hero. Please, could could you, could you call him back? And he cut a long story short. He said no can't call him back but if you give me like a little portfolio of yourself maybe like a little um cassette with some of your fights on it i'll give it to him and i was like oh come on please you just got to call anyway he says listen how about i come watch you train tomorrow and i'll and i'll assess you myself as an american guy he comes to the gym the next day he's like i love the way you move and your movements beautiful your hands peter i was like so can you ring the prince he goes i still can't ring he goes but i promise you you give me that portfolio and i'm gonna give it to him and so, you know, through missing out on Olympic Games and falling off that motorbike, I ended up meeting my childhood hero because a week after giving that to the Sheikh, he, Prince Hussein contacted me and he's like, hello, and I'm like, hello? He's like, is that Bilal? And I'm like, yeah, and he's like, it's Prince Nassim. And I was like, what? He goes, it's Prince Nassim. And I'm like, you're joking. And he goes, Habibi, I got your tape. And I was like, you got my tape? It really is you, you got my tape. Like he knew about the tapes. I was like, and he's like, I've seen your fights. And I was like, give me one second. So I've written, told my mom and dad, Princess seems on the phone, you know? And I'm talking to Naz and he goes, listen, when can you come and visit me? And I said, I can come like tomorrow. And he goes, no, no, be realistic. I said, listen, we're on school holidays. School holidays starts like. How old were you then? I was 17. Yeah. And he's like, well, come over then, you know, come over. And so I made my way over to, to the UK. I spoke to my dad, said, yeah, no problem. My dad said, we'll send him over. So I was in the UK a couple of days later and spent the next three weeks with Nas and most unbelievable experience, built the most amazing relationship with him. And basically, 
he gave me some instructions. I contacted Harry, said, Harry, can you come over to the UK? Nuz wants to give us, you know, some advice and whatever. So Harry flies to the UK again. We spent some time with Nuz together. He gives us a bit of instruction. We go home and I just turn pro right away. Boxers over in UK are treated like gods, eh? It's different, oh, man, it's, it's different, unbelievable. Different game over if there. You're, if you're a star in the UK, if you're a champion, you're a star. Yeah. And, like, Australia is, like, I mean, they're giving Tim that, that um, you know, that superstar and, you mm. know, like everyone's behind him because, of obviously, you know, he's a great fighter, number one, but he also carries the zoo name and zoo is, like, very loved, you know? Yeah. But if you're just a regular fighter and you become champion of the world, very hard to get the um the Australian public to really get behind you. Yeah, now nah, boxing is on another level in the UK. Yeah. They actually if you're a star in the UK, they put you on another pedestal, you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like Australia's got this thing about tall poppy syndrome, you know what I mean? They build you up to bring you down and So this whole thing I, I done a post about it the other day. And I, the post I done about it is, you know, we we encourage people to have self confidence and love ourselves, but when we do we get bagged for it. Yeah. You know, when, and you would have been that brash kid that would have been talking yourself up and, and believing in yourself. And, so, you know, and these people standing, I just don't get that about this culture. My, my whole thing was, man, if you want to achieve it, you got to believe it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You got to manifest it. You got to dream it. We heard you gotta, what you're talking about. Yes, you got to walk it. You got to believe it. And, and no matter who, who out there is a naysayer, you got to be able to, like, turn it off and be like, man, I'm just going to put you in the hater basket for a second. Yeah. Let me focus on me for a second. And that's how exactly how I was. You know what I mean? Like, there was even, like, times when my dad, my dad was always my biggest supporter, but my dad was, you know, he was trying to get me to be real. He said, he said Dad, you know, I know you want to be champion, but it's very hard. And I said, Dad, listen to me. Princess C-Man ain't no better than me. If he can do it, I can do it. I was just one of those kids, you know what I mean? And, that, and that's that's the message that I have today and that's the message that i live by today as i said vision consistency success it's as simple as that if you've got a vision and you're serious about your vision and you've manifested it and you're consistent in your approach when, when you're consistent means that you go out there and you you work on exactly what it's going to take to get to that to the, get to that point where it's successful so, for example, as a as a young boy, I knew that if I wanted to be a champion, I had to run, I had to train every day, I had to eat well, I had to get my rest, I had to listen to the to the trainers around me. That was the only way that I was going to achieve success. So it's like this: vision, consistency, success. It's as simple as that. Beautiful message. Beautiful message. I'd really love to know, like in your actual peak, like your prime when you're a boxer, mm. what did a typical day look like in terms of how much exercise you're doing, how many times you're in the gym, any other things you were doing? Was it just a normal day or like do you want to tell the extremes of the diet and the training and yeah. all the hard work that went into it to make you a champion? So when I won the world title against Zalani Morali in 2008, that that preparation was it wasn't a long one. It was probably like five weeks. Wow! But I had previous fights in the lead up to that, so I was like always in the gym. I was fit. And I was working with Johnny Lewis at the time. Then when I lost when I lost to Stephen Luevno for the WBO World Championship, I I sort of went on a soul searching journey. I was I went overseas to Mecca, 
You know, I mean, I did a, I did a pilgrimage over there, and I asked God for some guidance, and if He could guide me to a trainer who could take me to another world title. So, when I when when I tell you, I actually begged for the two world titles that I won. I begged God for them. I actually got on my knees and I begged God, say, God, please give me these, give me this world title, and I never asked for anything else again. So that was the first fight. Then when I lost to Levevano and I wanted another world title and I went to pilgrimage, I did the same thing. I said, God, I will never ask for another world title again. Just give me this one and give me success with it and I'll never ask you for anything again. It's like I fought for five world titles, but the two that I begged for is the two that I won. That's but powerful. Yeah, when I, when I actually won, when I was in the lead up to winning that world title, in the lead up to winning the IBF world title, my mindset and my training regime was unbelievable. I was in the gym Every single day, I would say let's multiple start. times or yeah, multiple times. I was I was training, I was training say three times a day. Also, I was doing uh, boxing, strength and conditioning, and I was doing running. So twice I'd be in the gym. You know what I mean? Like one time for the boxing, one time for the strength and conditioning, and then the other time I'd be on the road running. And that was like every single day, six days a week. If I fought on Friday, my trainer would be like, "Having the next five or six days off," I said, "No, no, no, I'll see you in the gym on Monday." I was just determined. I was like, I have to get to the world title and I'm going to leave no stone unturned on my way there. And that's exactly what happened. So we had nine fights leading into this world title fight against La Sieva, And Billy Hussain had a rule. His rule was, you're not going to fight for a world title until you've had 10 fights with me. I want to reshape your style. I want to do things. So I need 10 fights to get you to that point. Well, after nine fights, I was ranked number one in the world and we couldn't go anywhere else besides the world title fight. You know what I mean, it was like, if we didn't take that fight, then we'd fall back. And so our 10th fight ended up in for the world title, but I was in the gym nearly every single day in the lead up from 2008 to 2011. I can tell you there's only a few days that I took out to the gym. Like I was, I was traveling to America to train. We'd go, to, like we'd, we'd traveled to America, arrived there in the morning, we trained that same day. Yeah. Boxing, boxing's a, a very lonely sport. Like you do your road work, you're on your own, mm. you know. You're in your head a lot when you're boxing. There's no teammates. There's no, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're losing, like if you're behind on points or whatever, there's no one else to jump in and throw a few punches for you. Mm. What did you find out about yourself in that? Like you're on a run, you're doing a 10K run, you're trying to, you're trying to pull a time down, you're trying to do it fast to improve. What, what was the things that you found out and you liked about yourself when you're in that moment. The the one thing that I found out was that I had the ability to dig deep. Mm. I had the ability to dig deep. And like, where where did that come from? It came. It just came from my childhood. Um, you know, I've I remember growing up, man, and, and certain things would happen around me. You know, like um, I remember, you know, when I was a kid growing up and all the bullying going on and that, and I'd think to myself, one day I'm gonna, one day I'm gonna be the best in the world. Like I was determined from the age of twelve. As soon as I discovered boxing, anyone and everyone that I knew, anyone that spoke to me, I would tell them, listen, I'm going to be champion of the world. You remember my name. You watch, I'm going to become champion of the world. And people were like, oh, man, this kid's so young and brash. But, I was, you know, it wasn't that I was brash or cocky, but I was just confident in mm. I knew what I wanted. I, it was destiny for me. It's like I knew I'd get there. And so, you know, um, when you're talking about things that I would think about, like while I was on the road running by myself, I would actually envision the guy that I'm fighting running next to me. And I'm like, no, fuck you. Yeah. Mm. Fuck you, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> you know what I mean? I never, I never like, I always thought I'm going to outdo this guy. So I always imagined my opponent was next to me. Even when I was training in the gym, mm. I imagined him in, there next to me. And so when I first linked up with Billy Hussain, 
he had a rule about this 10 fights. We're not going to fight for all title for 10 fights. So don't come to me and tell me that there's an opportunity and you manage all. He goes, I'm telling you now, it's 10 fights or I don't want to be involved. And then he asked me, what do you want? And I said, I want to do, I want one-on-one training. I don't want anybody else in my gym. This is my gym and I don't want anybody else here. Mm. And at the start, it was cool. You know, I mean, it was just me and him and I'd go and do our thing. Then he started bringing sparring partners in. That was nice. So I did, And then slowly, slowly, when I became champion of the world, we sort of built a really cool stable. Like people wanted to join our team. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you got teammates hanging around you. you know, and I remember when I fought for the... um. When I fought for the IBF for title, we went on a training camp to the Gold Coast. At the time, I was being co I've seen the photos that Greg Walker's Team Fannin. Man, that's right. That's I've right. seen that photo. I've seen that group photo yeah. there of Corey Nakonal. That's right. That's yeah. right. I was co-managed at the time by a guy called Mike Altamira, Mike Karianis, and my brother Emad was the mm. one overlooking everything. Well, when we went on a training camp, we took all, like, basically took a team of, like, five guys with us. Like, you know, like people that were training alongside me, they'd go running with me. And it was cool because I was, like, I want to outdo them. Yeah. You know, I'm going to outdo these I'm going to outdo these kids. I'm going to show them what it takes to be a champion, you know what I mean? And that helped push me to the next level. And when we were actually preparing for the world title fight, we had Matt Sparring, we had Daniel Anato, we had um uh Bill Aldib, we had um Joel Brunka, man, all That's of this young fun. all of these young talent that was coming up in Australian boxing was we just crammed everyone into this camp and got the most amazing round in and just I was so prepared. By the time that I turned up to fight for the world title, I was like, shit, um, all i got to do is go and collect this belt. It's mine. I was so confident. Like, there was nothing in my mind that day that was negative. I was like, I'm going to kill this guy. It's over. People dream of meeting Oscar De La Hoya, Shane Mosley, and you you, shot, you signed up. You were like, that was, that was big news at the time, mate. Because yeah. for someone to, uh, like Oscar De La Hoya to identify your talent, mate, how did that make you feel? Man, it was, it, the, the story behind that is it's an incredible story. It was an unbelievable story. So it was my 21st birthday. Um, Jeff Fennick decided that he's going to take me to America to meet Mike Tyson. So not like I like in a, in, a, in a matter of six weeks, I'd connected with all these amazing people. And I was like, America is the place to be. You just got to be there to get in the mix. That's the place to be. If you want to be in the mix of... The wall of boxing, America is a spot yes, to be. You, know, is, you have is. to be there. And so while I was training with Mike Tyson, I went to this store in um, Fashion Show Mall in um, in Vegas, and there was a guy who had a picture with a, with Prince Nassim Hamed on the wall. And I was like, you know the Prince? He's like, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. I was like, man, me and him are like brothers. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, he's in jail. I said, no, nah, he got out yesterday. He goes, what do you mean he got out yesterday? I said, he, rang, he got out yesterday, he rang me. I go, you mustn't be very close with him if he didn't ring out. He rang me, you know, and I was rubbing it in. And then um, he asked, he started asking me a few questions and he goes, are you signed up to anybody? I said, nah. And he goes, I'm very good friends with Oscar De La Hoya and Shane Mosley and Bernard. They always come in my store and I look after him. I said, really? You're talking about Bernard Hopkins, the execu- executioner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I said to, um, I said to this Joe, me, his name was Joe, me, I said, Joe, if I give you a disc, a highlight video, can you send it to whoever? Because I go, I was at the fight the other night and I gave a disc to Eric Gomez and he said he would pass it to Oscar, but whether he does or not, I don't know. But could, would, could you give one to um, Shane? And so he sent it to Shane Mosley and then a few days later, Shane contacted us and said, listen, 
get that kid to call me. And I, and I, I was with Joe come past the hotel and he saw me, he's like, listen, Shane wants to speak to you. I said, man, that's awesome. Mm. And I'm on the phone with Shane. Shane's like, listen, how would you like to come to Pomona, California? And I was like, I'd love to. Because I live in an area called Laverne, but we can we can go to my training, my, my gym in, in Pomona, we can work out. And I was like, oh man, that, that's insane. Please, Shane, I, like, I'd love that. And he goes, I've seen the highlight video. He goes, man, you, you fight just like Prince Nassim Hamed. And I was like, well, he's my childhood hero, you know? Mm-hmm. And I go, and he and I are good friends. And so I rang my trainer, Harry, who was in Australia. I said, Harry, listen, I need you to come to America. And he goes, what for? And I said, Shane Mosley wants to trial me out. So I think he might want me to do some pads or whatever. But look, can you come and, you know, can you come and like, help me? And he's like, of course, I'll, I'm going to get, I'll book my flight right now. A few days later, Harry was in Vegas. We drove down the next day to, to um, Laverne, met with Shane at his house. And then Shane was like, um, Shane was just coming off that point just knocking out Fernando Vargas in the rematch so he was like big news you know and it was massive news and um I I went to um his house and we had a little bit of a chat and then he goes listen you want to go to the gym and I was like sure let's go we just had a three-hour drive from 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 uh, Vegas to LA and I was like I'd love to man let's go and so we went to the gym so I started getting ready, put my boots on and put some, start putting hands on And then I look to my right and there's Shane, takes his top off, starts putting some Abilene on his, like, on his body and starts wrapping his hands. And I'm like, Shane, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm getting ready. And I'm like, what for? And he goes, spy, eh? he goes we're going to spar. And I'm like, hold <laughs> wow. on one second. Sugar Shane Mosley's going to spar me. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And well, I was what like, went through your head right there? I was like, yeah, man, you know what? It went through my head. I was like, I turned around to my trainer, Harry, and I was like, Harry, do you remember when Oscar De La Hoya fought Shane Mosley and I said to you, do you think I could ever be as good as Shane Mosley or anyone like that? And he's like, I remember that. And I was like, I'm going to spar with Sugar Shane Mosley. I was petrified, though. How, how like, old were you? 21. I was 21. Yeah. And I, but, I'll t- but I'm not going to lie. I was petrified. But I'd sparred with Prince Nassim Hamed and done loads of body sparring with Nas and that. And Nas is like, psh, man, he's heavy-handed. You know what I mean? Mm. He's got bricks in his fists. Mm. And uh, I get in the ring with Shane and I'm so nervous and so like timid. Every time he faints me, I'm like, I'm like mm. getting all jittery and stuff. And then he just like sort of taps me with a slap, you know what I mean? Like, mm. and then bang, he just slaps me like real slow. But I was, my mind was nowhere like, I was like, man, I'm in the ring with Shane Mosley. This is crazy. I want people to film it and yeah. I just want the footage, you know? So then I come back to the corner of my trainer and Harry's like, listen. You made me get on a plane and travel all the way from Australia to Vegas and then drive three hours to California for you to do that shit. He goes, if you're, if you're hoping to get signed to Golden Boy Promotions, he ain't going to sign you like that. He goes, go out there, don't show him no respect, fuck him. Hmm. He goes, go out there and do exactly what you do with Prince Nassim Ahmed. He ain't no better than Prince Nassim Ahmed. And I was like, all right. So I'd like the, it's like the switch to turn the matter on, like, yeah. I was like... If, if I don't show him what I can do, he's not going to sign me up. So I, I just turned on that spoiler, just started chasing Shane and hit John, everything to land punches, flying uppercuts, left hooks, right hands. After three rounds of sparring, he took his gloves off and I was like, oh man, he's not impressed, you know? Mm. But he was. And I was like, I was just looking at him, he was like, listen, Billy, what's your plans over the next couple of years? And I was like, shit, I just want to become champion of the world. And he's like, I really believe you're going to get there, man. He's like, how would you like to be signed the Golden Boy Promotions? And I was like, you're joking. 
And he yeah. goes, nah, I'm serious. And and the thing behind that is that one of my childhood friends who I traveled, so we I fought for Australia and I had a friend who fought for Mexico. His name was Abner Mares. And Abner Mares went on to become a sensational world champion. You know mm. what I mean? And I remember contact, contacting Abner and asking him, how can I get in touch with Golden Boy Promotions? And he sent me their website and said, you just got to email them and stuff. All of a sudden now, Shane Moses is going to sign me up. So I'm going to be like, like really big news in Australia. It was when massive, you know. What when I mean? when you signed up with with them, that was like pioneering stuff. I was the first Australian to be signed to Golden Boy Promotions. I was the first Australian to be signed to an, to an international company like that, and it was man, it was it was huge. So some good fighters around at the time, wasn't there? There's some good Australian fighters. Like we had Michael really, Cassidy's. Yeah, Peden, Robbie Peden was over there. He was just, he was sort of on a decline there. Yeah, but. But Michael Cassidy's was doing, he was making noise in the UK. He just beat someone that was, they said that he was never going to beat. I'm yeah, he, to so he, he, he was doing good stuff in the UK. Yeah. And then um, when I, once I signed with Golden Boy, because we lived in Australia and like, you know, they were in America, so they could only afford to, you know, bring me and my team over when it was a big event. So every fight that I fought on was like an extravaganza. And when I'm, like, I'll be honest with you, the first fight that I had was, you know, like, on the undercard of Shane Mosley versus Calazzo. Then the next one was, like, um, Oscar De La Hoya versus Floyd Malva. Wow. Then I fought on the undercard of um, uh, uh, Michael Cassidy's versus Joel Casamayor, yeah, I was, I which was a fight. mad fight. Yeah. He was mad in front, fight. wasn't he? He was in front, yeah, too. He was doing really well, man. Then I fought on the undercard of um, Shane Mosley versus Cotto. Good, like another good all, fight. All big cards. Um, Winky Wright versus I Cortay. Mm. And then uh, the final one. He was another spo- yeah. spoiler, Winky Wright. Yeah, Winky Wright just had that defensive style. And, mm. you know, and then, and then next thing you know, I, had, um, I, fought, I fought on the undercard of Kelly Pavlik, who was like the big thing in boxing at the time, versus Bernard Hopkins. Bernard was supposedly getting old, but Bernard smashed him. Bernard was the first one to beat Tito. Yeah, yeah that's right. Felix Trinidad. No, no one, no one give him a chance. Then. Yeah. yeah. If, if did you get to meet? Did you get to talk to much to Bernard? A lot. I spent many times sitting across the table from Bernard. Like I'm talking hours on end, and I got footage of it. I got hours of footage of just talking to Bernard, and he was such a. Oh man, I don't know how to put it. Because he, he done prison and everything, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. But he, man, he was such a well-spoken guy. Yeah. He was very motivating. And he was like a philosopher nearly, you know what I mean? He's like, like, when you sit with him, he's like a philosopher of boxing. It was like, man, I was just taking all this information, you know? And then I was lucky, man, because not only was I signed to the company, I was actually hanging out with him 24-7. Like, there was a point where I was living with Shane, and me and Shane went over, when, when Oscar was getting prepared for uh, uh, Floyd Malva, I was in camp with Floyd and, I mean, with uh, Oscar and Shane in uh, Puerto Rico. Yeah, you know, which was. Did you go to uh, Big Bear? Did you ever train there? No. Many times. Yeah, it's the only place that I trained. Big I li- Bear. I, li- I just want to explain to the viewers: Big Bear is a specialized camp, like where the elite boxers go to train. They go and have camps there, and it's uh, it's it's the. Where's Big Bear? It's in it's in a very high altitude place. Oh, okay. So basically, once you're there, like I remember being there, going for runs, and like you can't you can't even breathe. The the air is like so thin, you barely can breathe. You know what I mean? It's like it burns your throat and that, but wow. after a few weeks of training there, your fitness levels are just on another level. 
and all the great fighters would go there. So even like UFC fighters now, they all like go there for training camps. And Shane Mosley has a home in Big Bear, and he he uses it now to hire out to other great athletes. You know what I mean? They 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 rent his premises for training camps, which is unreal. But it's like they call it Big Bear for a reason because there's actually bears there as well. You know what I mean? No joke. <laughs> and I was told a few times, listen, if you see a bear, when like if the bears run at you, run in a zigzag manner. Cause they're like the bear can't like, and I'm like, oh, what the hell, man! I was like tripping. Now I'm like, man, I'll be watching my back while I'm running. Like, <laughs> what was your most iconic moment um, in boxing or your career? The greatest moment of my boxing career was, you know, winning the IBO world title was special, but winning the IBF world title in the fashion that I did by shutting this guy Jorge Lasieva down, and, like nearly winning every round, that was probably the most amazing moment of my boxing career definitely i've been watching the love and, and support you you got diagnosed with cancer mate mm. mate and that was the last your last fight was on the gold coast because i was there I I, I, yeah. I I got to uh i was talking to uh billy hussein and and bill l dib as you were walking out i, was, I said g'day and wish you the best of luck i don't know mate you get a thousand people doing that but um but mate the diagnosis of cancer mate how, how did mate what and how did you respond to that? And what was going on? Were you feeling flat? Nah, man, I was, it was one day I was in the gym. Oh, I was tired. I was tired. And, um, you know, you just think that, oh, maybe I'm overworking myself or whatever. I had those days where I was a little bit knackered. But um, one day I was in the gym and Bilal Dib was in the gym as well. And Billy Hassan was like, we're going to do some body sparring today. And then Billy, Bilal Dib hit me right on the point of my colon in my stomach. I, he didn't win me and he didn't, it was nothing like that, but I just felt this sharp pain, like a really stabbing pain. And I kept on working through the spine. When I got out, I was like, man, that's an extremely uncomfortable pain. You know, I went home, sort of tried to lay it out, like I, I laid down. The next day I went to the gym again and I was meeting, that morning I was meeting with Brian Wilmot in the gym. It was Friday morning. And Brian came up to the gym. I said to Brian, we'll do a bit of a session and we'll go get some breakfast. So I'm in the gym. I start skipping and I'm like, oh, man, this is really, really bad. And I'm thinking maybe maybe I've got to go to the toilet or something. You know mm. what I mean? No, nah, I wasn't, wasn't going to none of that. You know what I mean? And then I just, Billy saying could see that I was uncomfortable. And he's like, listen, man, just have tomorrow off and just maybe come back on Monday. I have today off and come back on Monday. So I did that. I... um. I sat down and I said to Brian, Brian, you want to go? And he goes, yeah, mate, let's just go. So we made our way over to Cafe Roman, to a, to a cafeteria near my home. And we started to get, some, we had some breakfast and just a coffee and that. And I was, man, my, my stomach was on like, I was like, man, I was in like excruciating pain. I couldn't explain. And I'm talking to Brian, but I'm trying to hold in this pain. And and then Brian, he finally said, mate, I've got to go. And I said, oh, thank God. You know, you know like I'm, I didn't want to tell him that I'm not well. So I rush home, and I'm so sick in the bathroom. I told, and then my wife had to take my son swimming on on a Friday, and I said to listen, just go swimming. I'm, I, I want to be alright, you know. And then I contacted her like literally 30 minutes later. I said, look, I can't handle it anymore. Just, just go about your day. I'm gonna jump in a, I'm gonna jump in a cab and go to um, uh, go to the hospital, or I'm just gonna call an ambulance. She goes, no, just call an ambulance. So I called the ambulance, they come and got me, took me to the hospital. I was in a really, really bad state, man. 
fast forward a couple of days, man, and um, I'm now in Norway's private hospital, and um, they um, they run some scans and stuff, and um, they thought they woke me up and they said, man, we, we found cancer in your colon. He goes, don't be alarmed, we're gonna get it out. He goes, I just need permission from your from your guardian or your wife or whoever, just to be able to operate on you. And I was like, yeah, just contact my older brother. He's like, can we ring your dad? I was like, no, nah, don't ring my dad. Ring my brother Jihad. What was the purpose of that? He wanted to. He wanted to ring um, just to let him know that they had to operate on me because obviously, you know, I mean, the, there's risk involved. There's yeah. always risk involved. And but at the time, my dad was in hospital himself with, um, like, basically dealing with prostate cancer, you know, yeah. and he had an operation to remove the prostate and all that stuff. So I, um, uh, you know, he rang my brother Jihad, and then they they did the operation and. The next day or two days later, the doctor comes in and says, look, we've, we've taken out uh, a five-centimeter tumor from your colon. We've, we've cut out a nine-centimeter diameter around it. So, you know, you, you'll be fine. Um, just uh, you might need to do a bit of chemotherapy. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I'm not doing the chemo. So what for? I said, you just said that you removed it. Mm. Why would I do chemotherapy? I know what chemotherapy does. I've seen what it does because... In 2015, my wife died from leukemia. You know what I mean? So I already know what the chemotherapy did to her, the way that it made her look, the way that it made her feel. So I was like, I'm not doing any of that. If you're saying you've got it out, I'm good. And he goes, we'll just spend the next couple of days here, get your strength, and then when you're good, you can go home. Well, I did. I ended up being in the hospital for a week. Then I went home for a week, and then on that, that Friday of the second week, was it like... I was hit by a steam train again, man. Something was not right. I wasn't. Well, I couldn't go to the bathroom, so I felt like I needed to go to the bathroom, but I couldn't go. And I was feeling like really not well, you know. And so then my um, my wife was begging me, please let us take you to the hospital. I said, please, I don't want to go to the hospital. Just take me home. Let me recover, and we'll be okay. And she's like, no, we nearly, we really need to go to the hospital. And I pleaded with her, and she said, listen, okay, I'm gonna ring the hematologist. And if he says, come back to the hospital, we're going to go back. Do you agree? So whatever. Okay, whatever makes you happy. So she rings the hematologist and he says to her, I'm really sorry. He goes, because our appointment is on Monday. He goes, but I was hoping that I didn't have to see you till Monday. He goes, but unfortunately, we've misdiagnosed your husband. What do you mean? So he says to him, he says to my wife, he actually has non-Hodgkinson's Burkitt lymphoma cancer. After looking at his blood test, we've 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 worked out that he's got cancer in his blood. Wow. And I was obviously out of it because I was like in a lot of pain. So I, could, I didn't comprehend what she said. And when, we, when my wife contacted the, the hematologist, her cousin, his name is Billy as well, he's a doctor. He was there like assessing what the doctor was saying and he got off on the phone with him. And, and then he's telling my wife, listen, if he's going to have a cancer, this is the one to have. You know what I mean? Like, let's just not... Let's not ring the alarm bells just yet. Let's just let him go to the hospital and see what happens. And I went back to the hospital and, mate, it was just absolute, absolute hell, man. And then the, the next the next day, I was in the room with my mum and my mum was sort of sitting behind me and, and the hematologist walked in. So when he come in, I, I thought he, he sat on the table. So I got up and sat with him. And then he says to me, he goes, um, can I, who's that woman there? And I said, that's my mum. And he goes, okay, do you, can I speak in front of her? I said, sure. I said, what's the problem? And he goes, do you know the extent of the cancer that you have? And I said, 
absolutely not. And he's like, he goes, you got a cancer called non-Hodgkinson's Burke lymphoma cancer, and it basically it's a blood cancer and attacks all of your lymph nodes. He goes, I actually expect you to be riddled with it right now. He goes, just by the way, I'm, you, the look of you right now is that you don't look well. He goes, so I expect you to be riddled with it. And I was like, um, like I was just confused. You know, I just sat down like, well, I don't understand. He goes, well, listen, I'm going to put it to you like this. He goes, by the look of you, you got about six months to live. And I was like, six months? Oh. And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, I, I, I turned around and I looked at my mom because my mom had been telling me there's nothing. I'm so confident there's nothing. So I looked back and I just smiled at my mom and I turned around and I said to him, look, man, you know, all I can do is just thank God because, you know, everything that comes is from God. I said, but you're not God. You can't tell me that I'm going to die. You know what I mean? He goes, no, no, no. I'm not God. He goes, but I'm a hematologist and I've studied this for many, many years. And I'm telling you now, by the look of yourself, and he goes, and by the cancer that you have, he goes, it's a very, very fast attacking cancer. And he goes, you, you, won't, you won't last six months. At that pinnacle point in time, what went through your mind? Did right, you- right then and there in that exact moment was... I can't leave my son. And, you know, and I'd been saying that I don't want to do the chemotherapy and he's coming knowing that I've been saying I'm not doing chemotherapy, right? Because that's what the doctors, they all talk, you know what I mean? He doesn't want to do the chemo. And so then I said to him, my exact, exact words to him was, look, man, in the faith of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad and Almighty God said, tie your camel. I said, so I'm going to tie my camel right now and I'm going to ask you this question. How do I turn six months into 60 years and he goes you got to start chemo yesterday i said well listen i'm on board he goes just like that i said it's not about me anymore mate i said you see in life when something's just about you when it's just about you you'll be selfish but when it's about other people and about my son and my wife i was i had to take that selfish thing out and be like that's it if i got to do the chemotherapy i got to do it and that's what i did the following day they transported me to westmead hospital and that's where the hell began man What's the best way, like, I think you described chemo as hell, but tell, tell people through what it feels like, the nausea, the... Oh, man, listen, I remember the first infusion of, of chemotherapy, and you have to understand, for me, it was like, yes, I was experiencing this for the first time to myself, but this was the second time I was experiencing it because I was in the hospital for two months and 10 days every single day while Sarah battled this cancer. Mm, that was your wife. And yeah. That was my wife. Sarah was my wife. Mm. So I, I like even though I wasn't the one getting infused with the chemo, I could I could only remember her reactions, what she was going through, and for for her, the first time that they put the chemotherapy and she screamed, she was, take it out, take it out, stop, you know what I mean? Like screaming and I like and crying and I'm like, this is not good, you know. And I was telling the hematologist at the time, listen, man. Listen to her. He's like, listen, once we start, we can't stop. We just have to continue with the infusion. She'll be fine. Trust me. She broke out into hives and like it was, it was crazy. Mm. So I'm thinking to myself, this is going to happen to me. So you can imagine the first time they're coming to give me the chemotherapy, I was like, man, I was shaking. And I remember telling the nurse, I need five minutes. And she said to me, are you okay? And I was like, I need to go to the shower. I need to have a shower. And she's like, why? And I'm like, I'm extremely nervous and I need to get in the shower and calm my nerves. And I went in the shower, it didn't even help. You know, and I come out and I was nervous as, because they bring this bag with whatever's in it and then they cover it with a black bag because it's not allowed to have light on it. 
Mm. So yeah. it's covered in a black bag. It's radiation, basically, isn't it? Man, it's, I don't know what the hell it is, but it's horrible. Mm. So they put it in the first infusion, which was like, on the first day, it was like an hour. I got through it and I was like, mm, I didn't break out. I didn't, you know what I mean? I think I'm okay. But they give you all this pre-medication. That's the stuff that like every day in the morning you wake up, they give you a cup. It's got like six, seven tablets in it. Swallow these tablets. and Like, oh man, what am I, what am I swallowing? Yeah. You know, they don't tell you. No, nah, and they, they come in, they inject you with this thing, and you know what I mean, so that you you don't get blood clots and all this. It's just it's like nonstop, right? But the but the chemotherapy, it was okay for a few days, and then one day, they come in and said, "Oh, look, today's protocol is twenty three hours of chemotherapy," and I was like, twenty three hours." He said, "Yeah, we'll be infusing you from five p.m. now to four p.m. the following day," and I was like. What the hell? And then he goes, then we, then we got to get it out. So we flush you. And then, so look, they, while they're giving you the chemo, they're flushing you at the same time. So every 20 to 25 minutes, you're getting up, rushing to the toilet. Oh. So there's no rest. The, the, the chemotherapy, people die from it because it, it deprives you of sleep. It ruins your appetite. So you lose weight. You start to get really, really skinny. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I went from 68, 68 and a half all the way down to 57 and a half. I was like... At any point in time during that cancer or chemo, did you feel like giving in or there was no point in existing and living anymore? No, listen, man. My brother, my oldest brother, Jihad, he wrote on a... So as a young boy, as I said earlier, I loved Rocky movies. I grew up on the Rocky franchise. I Mm. loved them. That was like... If you come over my place, every single day there was a Rocky movie on. We played them on repeat a million times. In in Rocky Five, Mickey says to Sylvester Stallone, "Get up, you son of a bitch," because Mickey loves you. Mm. And my brother Joe knows how much I love that movie. So he, he wrote on the wall, in massive writing, "Get up, you son of a bitch," because Lathy loves you. Mm. So every time I thought that I was on my way down and I couldn't do it anymore, I just look up at that and be like, man. How can I rob this kid of the opportunity to go to school and tell his mates that his dad's Billy Dib? Or is he going to go to school and tell his mates, oh, my dad died when I was three years old? I was like, I can't let that happen to him. I just can't. I just, I just, it wasn't in me to let go for him. You know, That's and, the fighter instinct. And, 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 and as hard as it was, I will not lie to you, man. It was extremely hard. And there was, I'm not going to say that I did him because I did on five occasions. On five occasions, I said, I put my hands up and said, God, I'm asking you, God, right now, please take me because I can't take this pain anymore. If you've opened up the place in heaven, God, please take me now. But if you haven't, God, could you please send somebody to look after me because I am not well. You know what I mean? Like that, that's how bad it was. You know, having to rush to the bathroom every 20 minutes, like, you know, having no energy. I remember after that 23-hour infusion, I was like, I woke up and I had these ulcers all in my throat. Oh, I couldn't swallow. I couldn't drink. Everything felt like it was destroying my throat. And the doctors, you know, it's like they tell you, if you don't ask, we don't give you. And then one day this doctor, I was like, I, I said to him, Man, he's like, are you okay? And I said, I'm not, I'm not good. I said, I'm, I can't eat, I can't drink. He says, have you tried some endone? And I said, I told you I can't swallow. And he goes, what about if I give it to you in a liquid form? Man, I was like, oh, I put my hands on my head and I was like. More if medication. You, if, if you know the pain that I've been in for the last couple of days, why didn't you suggest this? You know what I mean? I, I want to try whatever I can go to try now because I'm, I'm telling you, I'm dying, man. And my weight's just dropping rapidly. They tell you to check your weight every day. Every day I check my weight. My weight's coming down by one, one and a half kilos every day. 
So he gives me this liquid endone and all of a sudden everything in my throat was completely numb. Like just numb. Like I could just eat whatever I wanted. I had no no issues, you know what I mean? So I, I basically grabbed the guy's hand. I kissed his hand. He's like, no, 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 it's my responsibility. This is my obligation. I was like, no, man, thank God you saved my life. You know, you think... I'll tell you something, I'm not religious, but if I was ever going to be religious, it'd be Islam. Because yeah. that, that's, that's just the most peaceful, giving religion I've ever seen. God's answered a lot of your prayers, hasn't he? Like, when you've asked, you've received. Man, I'll tell you now, the, the truth is, is that I'm not an advocate for cancer. I never will be. I'm not an advocate for chemotherapy. If somebody comes to me and says, Billy, do you recommend I take the chemotherapy? I'm telling them, listen, man, what I, what I suggest you do is go do some soul searching, go do some research. Because I'm not going to tell you to take it and then you take it and something happens to you. That's not my caper, you know what I mean? I don't want to do that. But what I am an advocate for is that every single time I called upon God, God answered my prayers. Mm. So it's very simple to me. Faith, family, friendship, and love are the only ways to get through this cancer. Yeah. It's the only way, you know what I mean? And a purpose, like you need a purpose. And my purpose was... I'd put it in my head that I'm going to walk my son to school. And now, when my son turns five, I'm going to go out of my way, no matter what's happening, to be the one to walk him to school every day. That's just my, that's what I want to do now, you know what I mean? Because before before getting sick with cancer, I, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I wanted so much. I wanted this and I wanted that and I want to buy this car and I want to buy this house. And, you know, it's all about attaining, attaining, attaining. And I wanted the world and everything in it. And then I got sick with cancer and all I wanted was time. Mm. And all I begged God for was time. Mm. So God, please just give me some time with my son and my wife. Just a little bit of time, please. Just let me out of hospital. After being in hospital for 28 days, I got on my knees and said, God, I'm begging you right now. I cannot take it no more, please. Just give me a few days with my son and my wife, please. Please, God, I can't take it anymore. A couple of days later, Hematologist walks in, he says, mate, you haven't had a fever for a few days, we're going to let you go home tomorrow. He said, no, no, you said if I haven't had a fever for a few days, you'd let me go home, so I want to go home tonight. And he let me go home, man. So everything that I, I asked for from God came true. So that's what I'm trying to say to you. Like, I, I don't understand how an atheist can, can, get, through, can get through something like mm. this, man. I'm, I, I, that's just really how I feel because in order to get through this, man, you need to have faith. You need to be able to, to call upon a higher power. And my higher power was obviously God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the faith of Islam. But you could be Christian, you could be Jewish, you could be Buddhist, whatever it is you are, like, you know what I mean? You have to believe in a higher power to get through something mm. like this. You have to. When you announced that you had cancer, I looked at social media that, mate, what a, how mate? What was the support like that you got? Because man, incredible man. Listen, the amount of support has been second to none. Mm. Not not just from Australia, but I'm talking from the world. Mm. You know, from the world. I had people who were who were going to Mecca to do like a pilgrimage, and they were like, "We're going to do that pilgrimage on your behalf. We're going to ask God to give you." You know, so people sending me photos of them in pilgrimage. Don't worry, you're going to walk your son to school. I've been praying for you, man. God's going to let you out of this one. You're a good person. You're a good guy. And God doesn't take good guys like you, you know, not, not just yet. You know what I mean? So like, Do you, know, you believe you'll get back in the ring? Is that a passion or is that something that's played in your head? 
man, when I was in when I was in hospital for years, my dad been telling me, "Listen, man, maybe it's time to just wrap it up." You know, I mean, you've had a fantastic career, you've achieved the highs, the boxing, and what more do you need to do? He'd he'd always say that to me. I said, "Dad, I'm just you know I'm, I'm on a bit of a journey. I'm gonna get there. When I see the finish line, I will." Then when I was in hospital, my dad said to me, "Listen, I want to see you have one more fight." And I was like, "Dad, I'm in the biggest fight of my life right now." So like, listen, I know how much you love boxing, and I'm giving you my blessings now, and I'm telling you that I want you to beat this so you can have one more fight. I want you to show the world how determined you are, you know. And so now, obviously, I've come out of hospital, but man, when I when I first came out of hospital a few weeks ago, my fingers were completely numb for about five months my my fingers i couldn't feel my fingers so i wouldn't even be able to put them in gloves they felt so numb they just it was like and a very uncomfortable feeling you know and so another thing is now is I'm ex- i get extremely tired quick you know i get like i can i've got energy for a few hours then i hit the wall and then i go like it so i haven't been back in the gym to even know how i feel you know because I mean, obviously you know to get back into it you know you're not sharp your timing's off how long is that all going to take to get back there? I'm 37 years of age now, man. So to be quite honest with you, I don't know whether I will and I don't know whether I won't. But right now, I'm just enjoying the time with my family, man. I'm just so grateful that God has given me more time because you see, time is something that we can never get back. I'm just trying to, you know, enjoy every moment of my life now. I'm only trying to give time to people that deserve my time. I'm just trying to devote myself to my son and my wife. And that's the most important thing for me, man. People get taken in a car accident. People get taken tragically. And they were never given an opportunity to tell those around them that they love them. But God gave me that opportunity. You know, everyone around me knows how much I love them. My family, my mother, my friends, my cousins, all that stuff. They all know how much they mean to me. And God gave me that opportunity to be able to tell them that. Where sometimes you die in a horrific car accident. You've left your house. You haven't said bye to your mum. You haven't given her a kiss. And, and you're gone. You get a diagnosis. The diagnosis comes back and you clear a cancer, mate. Tell us about that. Tell us how good that felt. So we, um, on that on the day of that, we got up really early. It was like 7 o'clock. We, got, we woke up early, me, my wife, my son. And, um, you know, I try and explain to my son that we're going to go to the hospital today. I'm going to do a scan. Dad, they're going to tell me if I've got cancer if I don't. You know what I mean? But on that morning, we went to the hospital we, there's a doctor by the name of Dr. Larry. He does this scan. The pet, it's called the PET scan. So they put the dye in you and everything like that. A couple of hours later, you're in your scan, you come out. And I asked Dr. Larry, I was like, Dr. Larry, tell me, man. And he's like, look, I'm not allowed to say anything, man, because, um, you know, it's, it's I can lose my job, you know. I was like, come on, Dr. Larry, please. You know, I'm begging you, man. He's like, look, I'm just going to say that things are looking good. When he said things are looking good, I took it like, okay, things are getting better, but there's still a little bit more to go because they said to me that if you're not clear, we'll do a few other things. We might need to do a bit of radiation and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, man, I, I just I didn't have it in me to do it anymore. I just couldn't do another round of chemo. The amount of vomiting and the nausea that I went through was just horrific, man. And I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. And I don't have any enemies, but I wouldn't wish it upon any of them. But So I left him and then I rang the hematologist and he says to me, I said, Dr. Bartachain, I'm just letting you know that we've done the, the PET scan and, you know, can you give me the result? And he said to me, I won't be able to give you the result till tomorrow because I'm in theatre today. And I was like, oh, Doc, please, man, you don't, I didn't sleep last night. Don't do that to me. I just need to know what's happening in my life. And he goes, Billy, I'm really busy right now and I'm going to have to call you back. 
So he hung up the phone because he had to go, obviously. So I said to my wife, I said, look, we're not going to get the results till tomorrow, so we just got to just pray, you know what I mean? Let's just pray and just hopefully we'll get through it. And then a few hours later, my wife was upstairs with my son in the bedroom, and I get a phone call, Dr. Bhattacharya, and I said, hello? And he goes, Billy, it's Dr. Bhattacharya. And I said, Dr. Bhattacharya, I got your number in my phone, I know. And he goes, listen, I just want to let you know the good news. Uh, you're you're cancer-free and you're in remission. I was like, what? And he goes, oh, look, I can't he talk just for too long. He like just spat it out like that. He goes, I can't really talk for too long. He goes, but this is the situation. I said, you're you're joking, right? And he goes, no, no, I'm serious. And he goes, I go, can I tell everybody? He's like, yeah, tell whoever you want. So I ran upstairs and said to my office, I got to tell you something. She goes, what? I said, I just got off the phone with a hematologist. She goes, yeah, what is it? And I said, I'm in remission. I got this no more cancer. She's like, what? I got this no more cancer. She's like, she just started crying and hugged me and, you know, the life's looking up like, well, why is mum crying? You know what I mean? I said, dad, I don't have cancer anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a moment. Yeah, it was the craziest moment. You know, like, it was, like, was that I was, better than winning a world title? Man, it was like, how can you explain God giving you more time? Mm, yeah. Like you've got a death sentence, but then you get more time. Mm. There's nothing better. It's like imagine being on death row, and then the guys walk in and they yeah. say, "Listen, we've we've looked over your case. We're going to let you out," mm. and you're just about to get put on death row. You know, like, "Oh my God, thank you yeah. so much." You know, that yeah, was like, for me. That's what it was. It was like I'm on death row. This doctor says you got six months. You're on death row, and then all of a sudden, God says no. You wrote a book recently, mate. Was that through the period of time that you had cancer? Was the book? No, I, I started writing a book in 2015 when Sarah was diagnosed with cancer herself. Yeah. And so when she passed away, you know, I started, I thought I needed some time to, I had time to burn, you know what I mean? I was in a really bad place. I just started writing. And as a kid, I always took notes. Daniel Gill, who's another great fighter mm-hmm. from Australian boxing, he was with me at the AIS and he said, listen, take a lot of notes because one day you'll write a great book. Mm. And, um, and that's what I did. Every time there was an opportunity, I just then I'd take notes and I'd write things that happened. And so when I come back to write this book, it was like in detail from like start to finish. And then um, it was done. And then um, it had been handed in. And then I got cancer. And then they did a recall. So we can't release the book now. We've got to wait till see like you know we're gonna write about this cancer journey. So after. I think it was like three or four months of back and forth in the hospital and I would always take notes and stuff like that as well. I started writing about this journey through cancer and then the ghostwriter put it together nicely and in the end we've released the book. It's um doesn't tell you whether I've beat the cancer or whether I've whether I haven't, you know what I mean? But it just leaves you hanging sort of thing, you know what I mean? But how can people get hold of that book? So really? so the book can be purchased at the moment, um for, oh, it's, it's on pre-purchase at the moment at www.billydip.com mm. so you just go to my website you, um, you can pre-purchase the book and the book is going to be dropping in the next one to two weeks and then hopefully we'll get distributed and everyone's going to get their book I just want to say on my behalf uh, I respect you giving us your time it, it really means a lot I prayed for you a few times during your when we were talking you know a few weeks ago and I just wish you nothing but the best, brother. Um, you're, you're an awesome guy. You've got a great story. And we're just grateful to have you on. Thank you, man. I'm truly humbled. Yeah. And, I mean, thank you I for having it. me on. It really, it really means a lot to me because everybody that says to me that they prayed for me, man, that just means the world to me. You're, you're amazing. Oh, man, your story is just amazing. The, the beautiful people and the beautiful – your story itself is just, 
man, just a breath of fresh air, brother. Thank I'm you like, very much, man. Thank you so much. And you're going to get back in the ring for that one last fight. Yeah, look, we'll you got see, that fight behind we'll see, you, brother. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. You know, obviously, um, to leave boxing on on uh, that last win is not the way that I want to go out, but I guess it all just comes down to my health and well-being. You know what I mean? That's the most important thing. If I go back to the gym and, and find that I'm not responding well, then I'm definitely going to not put myself in a position to get hurt. You know what I mean? But if an opportunity opens up and I feel good, then then we may assess that. We'll definitely assess it. Brother, inspirational. Billy the Kid did. Thanks for being on the sticker, mate. It's been an absolute... I, I rate this as one of the best wins we've ever done. So thank you for being a part of that. Thank you thank very you much. Thank you for guest host Jackson um, Tip and Tippett for being here. It's been amazing. Appreciate that, guys. Thank yeah. you so much. And to all the listeners out there, as I said, you know what I mean? This book is not a book about uh, boxing and all that stuff. No, this book's about... It's a book about life. You know, a book about overcoming the odds, you know what I mean? When people said, you weren't going to make it, I made it. When people said, you know, don't do this, I did that. You know what I mean? So, like, it's one of them books about really believing in yourself and overcoming the adversity to go on and become a successful world champion. What a story. What an amazing story.